Well, you know when you're in one of those situations where you're in a room or a gathering, there's people around you and something's going on and you just feel a bit lost. It feels a bit chaotic. You look around and people are on the inside and you just don't get it. Maybe you were kind of expecting that as you came back to church last week and you've got all these new precautions, instructions, and it felt a bit like chaos. Maybe. Maybe you're okay. Um, But maybe you've been in that situation where you look around a room and people look like they're on the inside. Maybe it's a new day at work or an inside group of friends that you're on the outside of. Maybe it's a different culture where people are speaking a different language and suddenly there's that moment where everyone laughs... And you're sat there, don't really understand. It feels a bit chaotic. It feels like it doesn't really make sense what's going on. Maybe it's an argument where where you're sure there's a backstory, things are getting pretty heated, but you're not quite sure. It seems all a bit chaotic in the moment. It's an uncomfortable feeling when you can't work out why it is as it is. And at first reading, look, look back at the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. You could say that's what that looks like. It's chaos. A blowing wind fills the whole house. Tongues of fire rest on the heads of each of them. And then they speak, start speaking in different tongues. See, as we read together this historic event, it's a bit like we're looking through the window. And we look... And it just seems a bit bizarre. You can't help but ask the question, what is going on? This is the moment in history, just as Jesus promised, that the Holy Spirit comes. And at first glance, the first four verses, they look like chaos. But here's what we're going to see this afternoon. The Spirit brings order, not disorder. The Spirit magnifies Christ, and the Spirit radically transforms. First, the Spirit brings order, not disorder. Because verse 1 to 4, it looks like chaos, doesn't it? And in fact, that's the exact accusation of some of those watching, like us looking through the window, the accusation of one of complete disorder. Look at verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. It's almost like a criminal accusation of of drunk and disorderly. It's so disorderly. It's like there's so much confusion going on in their moment, they must be drunk. But you see, Peter stands up and he says in response, these people, verse 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Peter wants to throw in a bit of humour there. He goes on to explain, using the words of Joel's prophecy, that that this is what was promised. This is what should be expected. But even within the context of the book of Acts and, and what we saw last week, it makes sense. Do you remember last week, Acts 1, verse 8, the, our verse on the back of our cards that should be on your chair? Pick it up and read with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus has charged his followers with a very specific task. Jesus hands over the job to the disciples to take the message about him to the very ends of the earth. He says, you will be my witnesses, witnesses of the Lord Jesus. 
And you can imagine them hearing that. They might have just got that sinking feeling. As it dawns on them, what first was a really exciting, appealing task to follow Jesus around in this amazing show suddenly becomes so much harder as Jesus ascends. And it's their job to go out, to tell people. Suddenly is so much more daunting. And so Jesus' promise to his followers is that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Which means what at first glance looks like mission impossible becomes mission unstoppable. And what we see here in Acts 2 is the first significant practical barrier to that mission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, carried by just a dozen apostles. How could they possibly do that? Well, the first big practical barrier is one of language. And look at verse 8. The people say, Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Here's the different places that the people have come from that are, are dwelling in Jerusalem at the time. And what do they hear? Verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Here's the list of places that Johnny brilliantly read. Have a look as they come up on a map. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. See, in the most simple terms, Jesus has sent his followers a helper, and the very first task is is getting that news out beyond barriers of tongue, of language, so that the message can travel. And that's the rest of the book of Acts, that we see the, the message continuing to flourish and spread. We see that sentence a couple of times through the book. And you see, what happens immediately at the very early section of Acts is not normative. It's not that what we should expect to see the Spirit do throughout all history. Because at this very moment, there's a very specific task for the people, the 12 apostles, to take out that message. Well, what else do we see this helper do? The promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit magnifies Christ. See, Peter explains the point using Joel's prophecy. In this prophecy that he reads, it says again and again of a saviour that is promised and what God will do. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Verse 18, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Verse 19, I will Show wonders and signs. God says, I will, I will, I will. I will. Why? For what purpose is God doing this thing, the outpouring of the Spirit? Well, look at verse 21. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Here's the point of the book of Acts, of Peter's sermon, of the gospel. There's a life-saving message about Jesus that is to go out to the ends of the earth. And Peter, he outlines briefly what that message is. It's familiar to the apostles. Look at verse 22. Jesus was God become man. Jesus came to earth from God to save his people. Verse 23, he died. Verse 24, he rose again. This would have been so familiar to those apostles. But just notice what each of those verses says. Verse 22, he was a man accredited by God. Verse 23, he died according to God's deliberate plan. Verse 24, he rose how? Because God himself rose him. The point of what is going on is this is Jesus, God's promised Messiah. What's Peter trying to get at? What does Peter want his listeners to know? Well, verse 36, he sums it up so succinctly. Be assured of this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. See, the outpouring of the Spirit, what's going on in this moment, is that the Spirit testifies to the person of Jesus. That's the purpose of the miraculous occurrences of the book of Acts, that people would be clear on the identity of Jesus. See, you have this brilliant picture of the Trinity. The Spirit convicts and convinces people of the identity of Jesus. The one whom God has made Lord and Messiah. We read a few weeks ago when we looked at baptism in some of these verses. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The promised Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I don't know what's the biggest deposit that you've handled. Maybe the deposit on a car, or a holiday, or something different. It might be like us, the biggest deposit you've handled was on a house. When we moved to Bicester, putting the deposit on the mortgage was easily, and probably will be forever, the biggest sum of money that we've handled. And when you make a transfer of that value, when there's a deposit of significant value, what do you want to do when that money's transferred? What's the immediate thing you want to do when that money's transferred out of your account? To check that it's gone through, isn't it? When you see all that money go... The first thing I wanted to do was phone the solicitors, check with the estate agent, check that that money had gone through. When a transfer like that takes place, you want to be absolutely sure. You need to know, you need to be confident of the inheritance. So you read this about the Holy Spirit, and you maybe think, wow, it's a seal that guarantees an inheritance of life with God forever. And it might just be that, like me, 
your instinct is to go, or oh, how do I check? How do I check that I've got this guarantee in me? How do I check that I've got the Holy Spirit? And the danger is that we could seek to check in all sorts of unhelpful ways. And we could become unsure. But you see, when we recognise that the Spirit magnifies Christ, and we see, as Peter said, we're convinced and convicted that that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, that's our guarantee. The daily desire to fall upon Jesus as my only Saviour, the daily desire to submit to Jesus as my only Lord. See, as the Spirit transforms transforms us to live for Jesus, God's appointed Saviour and Lord, whenever we recognise within us the deep desire to rest on Jesus, to cling to him, whenever we recognise the desire in us to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, whenever we recognise those things, we should be encouraged of the work of the Spirit in us, magnifying Christ. And it might be that you've recently become a Christian, you've recently turned to trust in Jesus, and you might look at these verses and say, well, it makes sense to, that turning to trust in Jesus is making Jesus my Lord and Saviour. But what does that mean? What does it look like in practice? What will the Spirit's work in making Jesus Lord and Saviour actually look like? Well, thirdly, we see the Spirit radically transforms. Look at verse 37. The people are asking that question. What does this mean? What do we do? If we've accepted Jesus as Lord and Messiah, just as you said, what what do we do? Verse 37, the people were cut to the heart. And the answer is to actively recognise Jesus as Lord and Saviour. See what Peter says? Repent and be baptised. See, it's an all-encompassing decision. As someone trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, the Spirit is making that radical transformation that convinces them of the need to let that affect every area of life. It's a decision to publicly, wholesomely follow Jesus, make him Lord and Saviour. And as the Spirit transforms people who trust in him, who who make Jesus Lord and Saviour, we see some specific things here. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, those people that have made Jesus Lord and Saviour, they want to listen to what God has to say to them through through those that Jesus himself has appointed to teach. They want to together listen and submit to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They're devoted to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Verse 44 says they were together and they had everything in common. They they cared for one another like family as they seek to live those lives radically transformed by the gospel. They shared all they had. They, They were a radical community. So it wasn't just that they were best mates, they, they really enjoyed hanging out together, but they were convinced and convicted together to make Jesus Lord and Saviour. They were devoted to prayer. They wanted to speak to God together. 
the God who promised Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And look, verse 47, it gives us an insight into what else was going on. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. See, this community that is empowered by the Spirit to live lives radically transformed, they just couldn't help but speak of him. They just couldn't help but grow. The Lord added to their number. We'll see as the story develops throughout the book of Acts that those who trusted in Jesus carried on taking out that task of Acts 1 verse 8 of being witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this, with the Spirit with them, they become part of that mission unstoppable to go on speaking about Jesus. See, the question for us is, well, will we be a community that is marked noticeably as a spirit-empowered community. And, and maybe that sounds immediately pretty airy-fairy, unspecific, a spirit-empowered community. Well, the specifics that we're given in Acts 2 are so specific. Will we be a, a people that are so conscious to live with Jesus as Lord and Saviour, just as Peter said? Will we be a people that are, are so conscious to be devoted to those things, be devoted to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to listening to what God has to say, to, to praying, to sharing that good news, to taking out that message to those in and around Bista. Will that be us? Because the only way it will be is if we let the Spirit continue to transform us, to be a people who make Jesus Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this Jesus, whom you made Lord and Saviour. Thank you that he is our Lord and he is our Saviour. Please would you help us to make him that daily. Lord, thank you for the conviction of the Spirit that means that we are moved to make him Lord and Saviour daily. Please help us to recognise that. And Lord, would you be transforming us by your Spirit to be a people that live that out in these ways that we see in Acts 2. And Lord, we pray desperately that many people in and around Bista would recognise this Jesus as Lord and Saviour for themselves as well. Amen.